2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. So for the third year in a row, we're doing a series of interviews this week with winners of this year's prestigious George Polk Journalism Award. Every day this week, Monday through Friday, we're going to put up an interview with a different Polk Award winner discussing their winning work. The Polk Awards honor long-form reporting. And as John Darton, the curator of the awards, talked about at the ceremony earlier this month, that work is done at a great cost. 67 journalists were killed in 2022. That's almost double from the year before, and the highest number since 2018, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. And as you'll hear, these conversations are not just a testament to the importance and the value and the power of investigative journalism. They're also a testament to the incredible risk this work often demands. Unlike previous versions of this series, everyone you're going to hear from this week has never been on the show before. Many of them are people we've wanted to talk to for a really long time, and I cannot wait for you to hear these conversations. But up first is a journalist who, I will tell you, I had never heard of until very recently. But that's because he hadn't been a journalist until very recently. Theo Baker is an investigative reporter at the Stanford Daily. He's a freshman, and he received a special Polk Award this year for a series of articles. He's actually still working on this reporting that uncovered allegations around research co-authored by the current Stanford president, Mark Tessier-Levine. The allegations are that that research had significant ethical and scientific issues. And as you'll hear, Theo's reporting led to a special investigation and also some pretty interesting moments for him on campus. It's a uh, it's quite the first semester of college, is what I can tell you, and one that, if uh, nothing else, feels very, very different than mine. So here's my conversation with Theo Baker of the Stanford Daily, and stay tuned the rest of the week. We've got more interviews with George Polk Award winners coming your way every day. Theo, welcome to the show. Congratulations on your uh, on your award. Thanks so much for having me. This is uh, this is super fun. <laughs> what an honor, man! I feel like um, people must have been saying this to you for several weeks now, but uh, but this is pretty wild. This is pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, it still absolutely has not settled in at all. I mean, this is something you know. If you told me a year ago that um, I would have gotten into Stanford, I would have, you know, said no way. <laughs> and if you told me I would have won a Polk Award in 20 years, I would have said not a chance. Um, <laughs> so I'm just, it's a little bizarre. <laughs> well, you are, um, not only are you the youngest Polk Award winner ever, I'm pretty sure you're the youngest person ever to come on the long form podcast too. So, you know, the, the honors, they just keep coming, Theo. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is certainly, uh, you know, even better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's about as prestigious, you know, it's about as prestigious. Um, 
It's a complicated story that you won the award for, and I was wondering if to start you can just kind of give me the layman's version of what you found. Yeah. It all started last year um, in the fall when I took a look at some online forums and realized that uh, there were some scientists that were having discussions about whether or not there were manipulated images in the the work of our, our neuroscientist and billionaire president, Mark Tessier-Levine. Um, I'm just going to stop you for a second. So just so I have this right, you're a freshman in college, you're on campus for a couple of months, and you're digging around online forums in like the deep scientific community? <laughs> Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I had just published my first few pieces that got a lot of traction. Um, I think this was a day after I published a piece about a man who was living on campus for a year, pretending to be a student, living in dorms with Stanford's knowledge. Um, And they kept kicking him off and he kept coming back and they never told anyone about him. So I just published that story. And I had a friend who texted me a link to a Medium post that had a link to a pub beer post that sort of set me off uh, on this track. But yeah, I mean, it was it was it was sort of a coincidence more than anything else. So you're looking around these forums. People are making allegations about the president of the university. What do you do next? Well, it's important to note that these are less allegations than they are questions. Um So I took what I had in front of me, which was people looking at a few specific papers and saying, hey, what's up here? And I went to actual forensic image analysts, um, and I worked very closely with them um, over the course of uh, probably about a month and a half to go through a number of different papers to confirm, um, you know, what some of the people were saying, but more importantly, to actually uh, look through and see what the severity of these alleged alterations would have been. And so I worked very closely with several image analysts. Um, ultimately, most of them were too scared of Mark Tessie Levine to go on the record. But Elizabeth Bick, um, who is sort of the world's number one expert in spotting image manipulation in scientific imagery and a, a wonderful woman, worked very closely with me and uh, was able to go through these papers and, and walk through all of it with me. So that was the first article. Um, and so that first article contained allegations um, that had been raised over the course of seven years that um, I think it was four different papers of Mark Teste Levine's had pretty serious image alteration. So the day after that, the Board of Trustees opened an investigation into our president, which we did not expect to happen so quickly. But we also didn't expect a number of the things that followed from that. Um, so the, they appointed a committee for themselves to investigate, um, composed of non-scientists, and there were four people on it. And I looked into it, and one of them had an $18 million investment in Mark Tessie Levine's company. Um, <laughs> it's, you can't make this up. Um, and so yada, yada. I mean, I've reported a bunch of things, more allegations of image alteration. Um, the biggest story came uh, about a month and a half ago now, um, which is I, I talked to a number of high-level executives inside of Genentech who, um, at extreme risk, even though they were granted anonymity, told me that there was an internal review of Mark Tessier-Levine's seminal Alzheimer's paper in 2011, and that this internal review found that there was not just image alteration, that the underlying data had been fabricated in the paper, 
and it had been done by this postdoc who was working in Martesi Levine's lab at the time. So the postdoc left the company and um, goes to community college the next year. And Martesi Levine flies across the country, and they say um, he kept those findings from becoming public. And so that was alleged by four separate executives to me who were in the room. Uh, and then it was later corroborated in an independent account sent to the board of trustees that I got my hands on. But Mark uh, vehemently denies that. I have so many questions, Theo. One of them is how, just like, how can you be so nonchalant telling the story? It's, it's, uh, it's incredible. It also seems kind of terrifying to do. I mean, what was this experience like for you? What was it like to be investigating the president of your own university? Well, it's useful to intellectualize it because um, <laughs> when you actually get going, I mean, this is something that certainly keeps me up at night. Um, you know, I've, I've definitely had dreams of Mark Tessier Levine more than once. Um, <laughs> I, it's the last thing I think about when I go to sleep and the first thing on my mind when I wake up. And it's stressful. It's extraordinarily stressful because I know that at the end of the day, um, you know, first of all, this is somebody who deserves respect, deserves to be treated fairly uh, and with thorough and comprehensive reporting. And second of all, is in charge of my very community. Um, and so with this latest story, you know, obviously we're crossing every T and dotting every I and we have an incredible team of journalism advisors who are professional journalists and editors um, who go through this and also a wonderful team of lawyers. But the day after we put out that story, he sent out a, a message to all faculty and staff, so that includes my professors, saying our reporting was, quote, replete with falsehoods and, quote, breathtakingly outrageous. And that's that's something, obviously, he has the power to do because he, he runs this community uh, and I am a part of this community. And obviously, you know, with the latest story especially, there are a lot of people who are violating their NDAs by talking uh, to us about this. And there's a lot of stress uh, that comes from that. Mark Tessie Levine has never responded to an email of mine directly. Um, hmm. We have this little game that goes on where I send him questions. He refuses to respond. His lawyer, who is the chairman emeritus of Cooley, uh, sends back an angry letter to me. I refuse to respond to that letter. I send more questions to Mark, and we do it all over again. Have you had like a, a moment where, you know, you've walked by him in the quad or whatever? So... Uh, as far as we can tell, he has not been coming into the office since this happened because we have eyes on it pretty constantly. Um, what we were able to do is um, the day we decided to deliver our questions to Mark for this latest story about the allegedly falsified Alzheimer's research um, is we followed his car because um, it drove past our building. It was totally serendipitous. And we saw him go into his office. So I came with a letter, a written letter of all of our questions I went to the front desk. I said, hey, let me in to Mark. You know, I got these questions. They obviously said, well, he's busy right now, but you can give me the questions. So I, I, I give the person at the front desk the questions. But I, I decided to hang around outside just in case because that wasn't a no. That wasn't a he doesn't want to talk to you. It was a just not right now. Right. It was just a, uh, just a timing thing. Exactly. So I hang around outside and Mark Tessie Levine comes out and he is – all but sprinting across main quad. I mean, this is a tall man, and he is moving. <laughs> um, and so we have a photographer there who captures it from the side, and I, I walk up to him and I say, 
hi, I'm, I'm Theo. Uh, and he says, oh, yes, I know who you are. You know, um, it's very nice to meet you. <laughs> um, and he says, you know, he's in a rush and he looks forward to responding. And I start to ask a question and he has that, at that point gotten into his car and closes the door um, <laughs> and drives away. And where were you at at the end of that exchange? I mean, my nerves were shot. Um, he was very clearly choosing his words carefully, although I think that's something that he does anyways. The thing that did not, I did not expect from that is, you know, he seemed very polite. He said, I have received your letter. I look forward to being in touch. Those are the exact words that he used. He, of course, was never in touch. It was his lawyer um, who sent a very angry email to us, specifically to me, um, you know, threatening our reporting, saying it was um, filled with all sorts of outrageous falsehoods. One thing that people listening might not know is that your paper is an independent organization. It's got its own board of directors. It's got its own bylaws. It has a contract with the university. Do I have that right? That like protects its independence? Yeah. Thank you for bringing this up. This is such an important point. And um, our board chair would be very mad if I didn't talk about it. (laughs) Um, So the Stanford Daily is celebrating its 50th year of independence from the university this year, um, which is fantastic. We've been having a lot of celebrations and looking back through the archives at all the the awesome stuff people have been putting out. Um, And what that means is that we're a California-registered 501c3. Um, So we are an independent corporation. Uh, We own our building. We um, have a memorandum of understanding with the university that protects our right to do this reporting. And all of this came from uh, what was happening 50 years ago when, uh, you know, as you might expect, some administrators were very upset about coverage and tried to stifle um, the Daily's work. And thank God we're in a position now where we have total editorial control of what we print. Um, And we have a fantastic team of advisors and board members who, you know, really carefully vet everything that is um, of importance like this. What are the things that are unique or different about writing for the Stanford Daily than what you imagine writing for the Times or the Post or whatever might be? Like, even though there are those protections there, it's not exactly the same, I assume. Like, there, there's some complications in the work that you do. Yeah, Definitely. Um, you know, the first thing is we're all kids. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. My editor, at least, is like, uh, I think he I think he turned 21 recently. Yeah, he did. He's, he's definitely 21 now. Um, I, I, I am a kid. I'll say that. Um, you know, I was when I was reporting these stories, I was 17. Um, and, uh, you know, I was warned right at the beginning by a source who is in the administration who I talked to for another article that, if you get one thing wrong, they're going to go after you. Those are the words that he used. Um, and, you know, <laughs> that was scary. Um, that is a scary place to be. Because even though even though we at the Stanford Daily are protected, I am not protected as a student of Stanford. You know, I, I am governed by Martessier Levine at the end of the day. Right. So your work in the Daily is protected, but you could still be disciplined as a student. I mean, yeah. And so, I mean, you have to assume that, like, I I don't think they're stupid enough to, like, try to go after us disciplinarily for things that we write. But, you know, this is a big institution. There are countless ways that people can make your life more uncomfortable, that, you know, they can try to put pressure on you in other ways that, you know, are 
quote unquote unrelated to the daily. Maybe this is a naive question, but when that administrator said that, was that a piece of advice or a threat? It was a warning. It, it was a it was a, a piece of caution. I was given a lot of warnings before this first story went out. You know, people told me, Mark Tessie Levine is a powerful man. You don't want to do this. Mark Tessie Levine is a good man. You don't want to do this. Mark Tessie Levine is a powerful man. I don't want to do this. And I had some version of that same conversation so many times before that first article came out um, in so many different ways, even by people who are, are um, you know, close to me otherwise. Um, and I, I will say that even though the first story was mostly based on things that are confirmable publicly, um, because image analysis, you know, that comes from the published papers. That's, that's, it's hard to say that there are no issues with those. Um, it was still nerve wracking. <laughs> yeah. Did it give you doubts? Well, I, I hoped at the beginning of this, that it might go differently, that, um, you know, things would not balloon to the proportion that they have. You know, I hoped and expected that, you know, there was a way for Mark Tessier Levine to, you know, take responsibility while acknowledging that he didn't do the alterations himself, which he probably did not, um, if we're being honest. Um, but um, it, it certainly made me nervous. I, I don't think, I don't think I doubted that the image manipulations were there um, because at that point, you know, I had been through it with a number of people whose job it is to identify these things. It had gone through forensic software. Um, and some of the stuff is pretty blatantly obvious. Like, you can see it with your own two eyes pretty easily. Um, so I wasn't concerned about the fact that there seemed to be image manipulation in some of these papers. It was more about how we presented it, how he came off, what would happen to him and to us. One of the things that I found so impressive about the piece was that, like, I actually understood what had happened and like I don't understand any of this stuff like this is like uh, this is a pretty nuanced science that you're writing about what was it like for you to get up to speed and how did that interact with these kind of moments of doubt and nerve-wrackingness it's like you're getting told by all of these people like be very very careful and also you're trying to wrap your head around like pretty high level science and pretty nuanced images like no, no, walk me through that if you can. Yeah, so one thing I've been pretty insistent on throughout this whole process is, you know, for every source I name or I quote, there are a dozen more people who I've talked to um, who are providing me scientific background, who are helping me understand the context of this, who are going in and confirming whether or not things sound reasonable, um, and who I give bits and chunks of the story to help me think through. And I've been really lucky to have access to some really high-profile scientists, um, you know, on the condition of anonymity, who have uh, certainly helped me understand a lot more of this stuff. If you asked me again last year, I would not have known what the amino terminal fragment of the amyloid precursor protein was. But um, I've always been fascinated by neuroscience. I think I've read every single Oliver Sacks book there is, but um, I've never been in a wet lab and I'm certainly not a scientist uh, in, you know, of the caliber of Martessi Levine or, or any of these people who are involved with it. So I, I have to rely on, on expertise that is beyond my own. And I'm lucky I've been able to seek that out. 
I'm wary of asking you like goofball stereotypical questions, but there is an element of this that I'm just so curious about, which is like basically how do you balance doing this work in a university environment in the way that we've been talking about, which is like you are part of the community, this person is in charge of that community. Um, you know, it's not a, a traditional sort of journalist and story relationship, but also like you're going to Stanford. I imagine you've got a shit ton of work to do. Like, where'd you find the time to talk to every scientist under the sun to help you understand this? Like, uh, I guess what I'm asking is like, Theo, how's your how's your schoolwork? My schoolwork is okay. My sleep is not great. Um, <laughs> the reason I came to this place is because I wanted to explore, and I, I sure as hell have not given that up for a single story. So, um, you know, I'm also a research assistant and a teaching assistant, and I'm doing research with another person, and I'm helping to run uh, Tree Hacks, which is the one of the largest collegiate hackathons in the country. It piles up sometimes. Actually, the the weekend that we published... Um, this Alzheimer's story was also the weekend of tree hacks, which meant that there were 1,750 kids on Stanford's campus, um, and I and a dozen other people were responsible for caring for them. Um, and as you can imagine, you know, you don't sleep too much when you're doing that. Um, but I tried to keep everything in the air um, and, and keep it juggling um, to varying degrees of success. Sounds exhausting. Well, um, I think hopefully that, um, you know, when work is as important as this, and this work is quite important to me, um, it's, it serves as a real motivating factor. Um, you know, the, the, the truth is its own reward, uh, as, as people will say. But um, in this case, it genuinely is true. I, I really, I do desperately want to get to the bottom of all the things that happened here. Um, and so, you know, if having two dozen calls a day is the price for that, it's not um, It's not a price I'm not willing to pay. Can you articulate where that desperation comes from? Like, what's driving you in the way that you're describing? Um, I mean, I, I, I really fundamentally think that my highest belief is in the truth. <laughs> um, and that sounds so cliche, but that is actually, like, something I've always believed. It it outrages me that um, things can happen that are of importance to a community without the community knowing about it. Um, I believe in transparency. I believe in accountability. I grew up in D.C. where it's certainly a fight to try to get any of those things uh, to happen. And so, you know, my conviction here from the start, I, I, I could care less about Mark Tessie Levine himself or what happens to him or any of that, really. I just want, if there are things for the community to know, and it seems like at this point, it's pretty clear that there are, um, I want everybody to have the full portrait and the full fact set to be able to come to their own conclusions. I've read a little bit about the conversations you were having with your grandfather before you got to school. Is that determination connected to those conversations? Yeah, I mean... My grandfather was a wonderful man, um, genuinely the most inquisitive and caring person I've ever known. Um, you know, he he sucked up information like a Hoover. He would. Um, I, I've found it very difficult recently to even know what the weather is outside because he used to call me pretty much every day 
And not only would he tell me, you know, everything happening in his life, everything happening in all of my family's life and the weather at his uh, house, but he would also tell me what the weather would look like at my house. <laughs> and I, I relied on him for a lot of things. Um, and one thing that was really special about my grandfather is that he absolutely adored his college paper. You know, he was a lawyer by trade, but a journalist by disposition. He you know, would talk about the summer he spent working at his local paper, every other conversation. You know, he, he died um, about two weeks before I came to Stanford. Um, and I, I just felt like it was something I should and, and had to do in his memory. Um, something maybe that would keep me connected to him. I'm really sorry. No, thank you. It's... um. You know, he was he was a he was a really courageous man. He he had congestive heart failure for a decade. You know, he was counted out a half dozen times and he always rallied. Um <laughs> he literally and I mean literally moved heaven and earth to get to my graduation. You know, he was f- sitting in a hospital bed recovering from COVID and he said I'm going to be at your graduation and everybody else said, "What?" <laughs> and he was there. Um and I will I'll always remember that and always be grateful for it. I'm sure you've made him very proud, man. Well, I, I'm uh, I'm lucky that I, I I'm in a line of um, I think quite impressive journalists, um, and so I, I do hope that the work I'm doing can live up to their example. Um, you know, because I'm still I am still figuring things out. <laughs> I am still very much inexperienced in this, um, and there are lots of things I need to know. And I'm I'm trying very hard to make it on my own here. Um, you know, there are a lot of times when it would be easier to source things by going through my parents or using other connections. But I, you know, I have a pretty firm stance that I refuse to do that ever. So, you know, I, I just, I think my grandfather and my parents have, have shown me a really courageous example of how to lead a life. And, and I hope that, you know, whatever I do with mine, I can... Um, always remember that and keep it in mind. Yeah, your folks are both very prominent journalists. But I'm curious about what you were just saying about what you still um, feel like you don't know or have to learn. Like, um, what do you think you have to work on? Well, I've only been doing this for a couple months, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you're off to a pretty good start. Well, thank you. Um, And I'm I'm super lucky. I've... I decided from the start that what I was going to do is take advantage of every resource that the daily has and is available to every other daily writer. Um, and so I have absolutely, you know, milked those. Tracy, who's one of our journalism advisors, is the deputy health and science editor at The Post and has been super willing always to take a call. Glenn Cramon has been working very closely with us. He's a former business editor of The Times. Um, Phil Taubman, former D.C. bureau chief, uh, R.B. Brenner, former post reporter for decades, um, to have these people on speed dial, and it is literally speed dial at this point, <laughs> is an incredible privilege. Um, and uh, I've been super lucky. I mean, they have really kept me on my feet uh, and given me guidance at every step. And also our lawyer, Eric Stahl, um, from Davis Wright Tremaine, is really fantastic. His goal is always to get something out the door with as little risk as possible. Um and so, you know, I think his heart is really in the right place and he has made all of our pieces a lot stronger um, and been super thoughtful throughout the process. Do you have a sense of what's 
next for the story and what's next for you as a journalist? Like, uh, how do you follow this up? Well, I do know a little bit about what's coming next in the story. Um, and that will be, um, you know, there's a story I've been tracking down for about as long as I've been tracking down the, the Alzheimer's story. Um, and I now know that there are a few other reporters chasing it, so we'll see who gets it first. Um, but the big part of the story is, frankly, what is going to happen with this special committee, right? So this is a president who is accused of covering up falsification of data in Alzheimer's research. That is a serious charge that needs to be investigated seriously. Is the special committee going to do that? That's a real question um, because so far they have not reached out to any of our sources. Um, they haven't even set up an interview with the editor-in-chief of Science who you know, published a number of these articles and um, is pretty instrumental in the account that Mark Tessier-Livian gave back in November of last year. So it's really going to be a big question of what this committee finds, what they try to find, um, and, and what happens based on that. Um, and that is a big story and one that, I, frankly, I'm not sure where it will lead. Well, at least you, uh, you can have some confidence that they know you'll be watching pretty closely. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a story with a lot of, of stiff resistance um, against it. You know, it's like constantly pushing your head up against a brick wall and trying to find the brick that'll come loose so you can get to the next wall. Um, you know, I cannot tell you how many, how many fruitless emails I sent trying to get sources for this Genentech story. Because at the end of the day, every single one of those sources is one that I came to with questions who participated somewhat begrudgingly. Um, you know, it's not like people came to me and dropped this story out of the sky. Um, it's very much not that. And so one thing that's important, I think, to know is that, like, at least on the special committee side, you know, the lawyer they hired, Mark Phillip, the former deputy attorney general, um, this is the guy Boeing called when their plane started crashing. Um, you know, he's not, he's not an amateur here. And they also hired, you know, Edelman's senior vice president for crisis communications to be their spokesperson. So at least in that respect, um, we're dealing with some, some pretty serious resistance to our reporting. I have one more like a uh, student journalism question, which is, were there any ways in which being 17 at the time you were doing this reporting made it more challenging for people to talk to you? And were there any ways in which being 17 when you were doing this reporting made it easier to get people to talk to you? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I, it definitely made things harder um, a lot of the time. I mean... Right, because if, if, if you think about it, if you're sitting on a story that is of importance like this and you are governed by NDAs, do you really want to trust a 17-year-old with it? Um, and, you know, the answer, I think, for most people rationally would be no, of course not. Um, but um, once I got past the first story, that was um, a, a big credibility booster. Um, and so I was able to parlay that into talking to a lot of people who wouldn't have talked to me otherwise um, in the science world related to this story, not related to this story. Um, and pretty much without fail, <laughs> none of them have known exactly how old I am. Uh, most of them are shocked that I'm an undergraduate. I, I remember I've, I've been talking to this one source for many, many months since the start, a lot, um, all on deep background. This is a guy who is, is super professional, um, always takes my calls, always takes my texts. 
And one day, he accidentally clicked on the FaceTime button instead of, like, the call button. And I picked it up. And he looks at my face and he says, oh, my God, you're young. Um, <laughs> and it was just, it was a, it was a perfect reaction. Um, and thankfully, he continued to work with me even after realizing how young I am. But, um, you know, I, I think it's a good thing that people are starting to realize that, like, we are, we should be taken seriously. Um, we will be following up on all of these stories. If if you do things that are like putting a person on a committee with an $18 million potential conflict of interest, you know, we will find them within a day. Um, that's, that's within our capabilities. Um, so I, I think this hopefully, um, has a lot of people taking student journalism seriously. Um, and, uh, all of these stories, all of the big stories that I've reported have been out there for years and haven't been tracked down. Um, by anyone from national or local outlets or even from our own paper. Well, I'm sure in your community, it's definitely getting a lot of people to take student journalism pretty seriously. Yeah, I mean, the reception has been sort of um, (laughs) fascinating in its own way. I think the most important thing is um, that I I hope this raises some conversations in our community, both about accountability and transparency, because I I think, frankly, accountability is not something that we have seen here often. And I I don't mean that to apply to Mark Tessie Levine. Again, I'm not particularly invested what happens there. But I think there are other examples. You know, here at this school, we have Hunter Frazier, for example, who is a biology professor still running a lab who's charged with two counts of uh, felony domestic assault. Um, you know, we have a professor named Stan Cohen, uh, a living legend in genetics who was found liable for $30 million worth of fraud, still works here. When I asked the university about him, they said, oh, we've never heard of this case. I then went and said, but you were subpoenaed and you provided documents. And they said, oh, okay, we'll look into it. Um, <laughs> you know, there is not a real culture of transparency here. Um, and so I hope that's something that we can begin to shift. And I also hope this raises really broad questions about um, science, reproducibility, um, and and just in general about student journalism. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure how many questions it's asking about student journalism, but um, I appreciate you answering all of mine. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I mean, it is a treat to get to talk about this reporting. I think it's really important. Um, And I'm really lucky that... um, we've been able to to get this far um, with a fantastic team and that our stories have gotten some recognition. So really appreciate you taking the time and, and really appreciate this. Thanks for listening to Longform and thanks for listening to this special series we're doing with this year's winners of the George Polk Awards. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Seth Kelly edited this episode. Thanks to him. Thanks to John Darton and everyone at the Polk Awards for making this possible. Thanks to Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks to Theo Baker for taking some time to talk to me from his dorm room. We'll be back tomorrow with another interview with a Polk Award winner. we got four more of them coming this week. Then we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming next week. Thanks for listening.